0: We're continuing our series in the book of James, and we're going to pick it up in verse fourteen. Now, my original intention tonight was to get into chapter three. Um, we were in chapter two last week, the first half of chapter two, and then as I'm reading scripture, I'm studying the book of James. I'm like, I I have to I have to talk about the second half of James. I can't just gloss over it because it's foundational to the entire book. Faith versus works, are they compatible? Are they inconsistent in any way? And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and then next week we'll conclude our series in the book of James, and we'll cover chapters 3 through 5, and we'll see what the Lord does with that. But for tonight, we're just in chapter 2, and we're going to look at the second half of that chapter, starting in verse 14. Our whole theme up until this point, through the book of James, is how do I properly and practically reflect Jesus to the world around me? I've been saying that the past few weeks. That's the mindset in which James writes, and that's the mindset through the lens through which we read. How do we properly and practically reflect Jesus to the world around us? How do we do that? That's what the book of James is practically about practical Christian living. Practical Christian living. And so, the question that we've been answering, the question I want to continue answering tonight, is what does a life that is truly following Jesus look like? That is so key. What does a life that's truly after Jesus, that's truly following after Jesus, that wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the definition of a Christian, follower of Christ, what does that life look like? And we talked uh, up into this point the past few weeks, what does a life that is truly following Jesus look like? Well, a life that's truly following Jesus considers trials as an opportunity for great joy. Many Christians, many people in general, when they go through difficulty, it so discourages them that they are paralyzed. They cannot continue to proceed and grow and mature in their relationship with Christ. But James says in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, he says, Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds. So a life that truly follows, J- follows Jesus considers those difficulties and those trials and tribulations as an opportunity for great joy. He also says a life that's truly following Jesus endures temptation rather than participates in it. If you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you are after Jesus. You want to be a follower after Jesus' heart? Then rather than participating and giving into temptation, by the grace and help of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to endure it. That's what a disciple of Jesus Christ does. A follower of Jesus Christ, we talked about this last week, doesn't show favoritism to certain people. A follower of Jesus Christ, that's important, that we're kingdom-minded, that we see them through kingdom eyes. Remember last week we talked about that, the the sin of partiality. A follower of Jesus Christ doesn't show favoritism to certain people. These are all ways, James says, that we can properly and practically reflect the God that we claim to serve. Because whether you realize it or not, when you go public with your love for Jesus Christ, people will be watching you. And that's scary. But when you go public with your faith, when you go public for your love for Jesus, people are going to be watching you. We talked about this last week. They'll be watching you for one of two reasons either they're watching you out of gen- genuine curiosity, how do you have hope through this difficulty? and they're truly curious, and your faith is attractive to them, and they, they genuinely want what you have, and so they're curious. They're watching you. Others will be watching you because they cannot wait for you to mess up because when you mess up, it is a reason and a justification as to why they don't need Jesus. Look at this guy. Just hopeless, looking like the rest of the world. Their actions aren't different than mine. And when you mess up, when you fall, when you trip up, It gives them justification as to why they they don't need, I don't need Jesus, but they're watching you. The world is watching. And so the topic of our study tonight is people are watching how your faith takes action. People are watching how your faith takes action. In other words, you say you're a Christian, great. Then your walk better match the talk. You say you love Jesus? Awesome. James is going to say, show me your faith without action, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. So if you say you're a Christian, if you say you love Jesus, then the walk better match the talk. And the question becomes, well then, does what I do as a Christian actually matter? Because I've heard it said, and maybe you've heard this as well, and maybe this is kind of what you think, because the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not our works so that no one can boast. And so then the question becomes, well then, Austin, if we're saved by grace, by God's grace through our faith, and we're not saved by our works, then why does it matter how I behave? Does it matter what I do? If if we're not saved by works and we're saved by God's grace, then where do works and And my behavior, my actions, where does that fit in? Because if that doesn't save me, then why does it matter what I do, or where I go, or how I talk, or who I hang out with? Does that even matter? Does what I do even matter? And the simple answer is yes. What you do matters. Because the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, people won't find your faith attractive if your walk is inconsistent with what you claim to believe. Does that make sense? In other words, your faith won't be of any substance to people if your behavior is inconsistent with your belief. And so it's extremely important that our behavior is consistent with our belief, and James will even ratchet up a notch, and he says that that kind of inconsistent faith... Behavior that doesn't match belief, that kind of inconsistency, is actually no faith at all. He calls that kind of faith a dead and useless faith. It's very challenging. And so the title of tonight's message is, Works Matter. Works Matter. But what do I mean by that? Faith and works, are they inconsistent and incompatible? How do we marry the two? That's what we'll talk about tonight. First, let's pray, and then we'll dive into our passage. And so, Lord, we come before you now and we're grateful to be together. I thank you so much that you've brought us together in your house tonight. And I pray now that you would teach us and that you would open up our ears to hear from you, Lord. We invite you here. My words will be completely meaningless, Lord, unless your presence is also with us. And so I pray that you would be our teacher that you would guard our hearts and guard our minds, that you would keep the enemy away. Any distractions that we've brought into young adults tonight, anything that's been on our minds that's just been really weighing us down, I pray in Jesus' name that you would calm our hearts before you. Give us receptive hearts to hear from you tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people together said, Amen. And all God's people together said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's read chapter 2 starting in verse 14 together. We're going to read down through the end of the chapter. In verse 14, James, he says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Some translations say, Can such faith save him, or can this kind of faith save him? Verse 15, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled... But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot, or the prostitute, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. All right, pause there with me. So, if you grew up in a legalistic background, there are a lot of rules, there's a lot of law, and that's kind of been your Mindset as you've grown up in the church. You're probably reading, with this, uh, reading this with me and getting all tense. Like, okay, come on, Austin, just, just lay it on me. Give me the rules. What do I need to do to feel like my relationship with God is successful? Do I need to read my Bible more? Do I need to pray more? Do I need to come to church more? Do I need to give more to the church? Just give me a list so that I can feel like my relationship with God is going well. When James talks about your faith without works is dead. So give me a list of the works. What do I need to do? And then those maybe here tonight that feel more licensed, like, well, I'm saved by grace. Work, works? What, what do I need works for? I'm saved by grace through my faith, not of works so that no one can boast. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable right now. James, what are you saying? You're, this is, you're mentioning the word works a lot. And it's making me uncomfortable. It's making me feel like I've got to do stuff to get saved. Like, like I'm, not, I'm going to lose my salvation if I don't do A, B, and C. And it's a good question. How do we reconcile what James says here in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 17? He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How do we reconcile what James says here with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. And skeptics throughout the centuries point to these two verses and say that these two verses are incompatible in order to discredit the Bible. And at face value, these verses do present to us a very tricky problem. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, then that's not real faith, it's dead. But then Paul says, no, it's by grace you're saved, not of works so that no one can boast. How do we reconcile the two? Let's calm down. These two passages are compatible. And if you actually look at the full counsel of God's word, it's not too hard to see why. And we're going to walk through it. Many people over the centuries have wrestled with this passage, have argued over this passage... Here's what James is not saying. James is not saying that faith plus works equals salvation. I want to be very clear about that. You will never hear me preach a message that says, faith in Jesus Christ plus your works equals salvation. Faith plus works does not equal salvation. salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This... Uh, The concept of faith plus works equals salvation has crept its way into many religious systems, that I have to do good things in order to work my way up to God. It's crept into many religious systems, Catholicism being one of them. Catholicism teaches that you are saved by faith plus good works, that you are saved by faith plus good works and obeying the sacraments. If you die with enough righteousness, then you get to heaven. But if you die somewhere in between without perfect righteousness, then you go to a place called purgatory, somewhat of a second chance, in order to hopefully obtain perfect righteousness to get to heaven. The Bible just simply doesn't teach this. Hebrews 9.27 says, After death comes the judgment. There is no in-between. The Bible doesn't talk about purgatory or being an in-between place, that one has to work for salvation is inconsistent with the gospel, that salvation was finished on the cross by Jesus Christ, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, you know, Paul, he combats this kind of theology all throughout the New Testament, There was a Jewish sect known as the Judaizers, and they were always saying, yes, believe in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus plus something else. And the Judaizers said, it's Jesus plus following the Jewish feasts. Paul says, no. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Paul says, no. It is Jesus plus baptism. Paul says, no. It is Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Paul says, no. Every corner that you turn where some sect tried to add works on to the finished work of Jesus Christ... It is a corruption of the gospel. When you attempt to add works onto the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are making it a man-made system, a works-oriented approach to salvation. Where the Judaizers were always saying, it's Jesus plus do this, do that, do, do, do. Paul comes along and he says, it is Jesus plus done. Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. I just realized I'm having kind of a brain fart because I actually said do, 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 (laughs) do. And I was like, oh my goodness. It's Jesus plus done. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Meaning that the plan of redemption, the door is now officially open for sinful man to be reconciled back to holy God because of Jesus's performance for you, not your performance for Jesus. This is not what James is communicating here, that faith plus works equals salvation, Paul would say in Romans 6:23, "For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A free gift by definition is something that you cannot work for, that cannot be earned by your own merit. It is a free gift. That's how Paul clarifies salvation. So James is not saying that salvation is by faith plus works. Here's what James is saying, though, however. James is saying the kind of faith that is genuine will by nature produce good works. The kind of faith that is genuine will by nature produce good works. In other words, a heart that has truly been transformed internally by the power of Jesus Christ will by nature produce works externally. A heart that's been transformed internally by Jesus Christ will by nature, it has no no other choice but to produce good works externally. I heard someone once say that it's of no use to use the same vocabulary if we're using different dictionaries. What does James mean here when he uses the word faith? A lot of people throw out the word faith. I'm a person of faith. I'm a man of faith. Are you a person of faith? The, the, the word faith is it's often used, it's often thrown out in, in and around our culture. What's James's definition of faith here? When he uses the word faith, he uses the word faith 11 times in 13 verses. It has to do with the kind of faith that James is talking about. So what is James's definition of Faith. Well, first, James tells us what faith is not. I want you to look at verse 19 with me. James first tells us what faith is not. In verse 19, he says, You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Here's what James first tells us. He says, Faith is not the intellectual belief that God is real, powerful, or sovereign. And he uses the demons as the example. He tells them, he says, you believe that there is one God? That's great. Even the demons believe that. So when James uses the word faith, here's what he doesn't mean. That faith is just this intellectual knowledge that God is real, that God exists, that God is powerful, that God is sovereign. The demons know all that. Here's what's really important for us to understand. It is possible to have right theology... Theology is the study of God, knowing the, understanding God. It's possible to have right theology and yet not submit to that theology. That's what the demons are. Satan and the demons, they have great theology. Satan and the demons, they understand who God is. They believe in God. They know that God is real. They know that God exists. They've seen God's power at work. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. The theology of Satan and his demons is on point. The difference is they don't submit to that right theology. They have rebelled against that knowledge and therefore will experience eternal separation from God in hell. So it is possible for people to have an experience and to understand right theology, but if that person is not submitted and surrendered, if they don't have a heart, and if their actions are not submitted and surrendered to that right theology, it's completely meaningless. There are a lot of people who possibly have good theology. I believe God is real. You know, you've heard this. Maybe you're here tonight. This is your theology. This is your way of thinking. I believe God is real. I believe in Jesus. I believe that God's powerful. That's great. So do the demons. (laughs) So it's possible to have right theology, but not be submitted and surrendered to that theology. And that's the difference between a demon and a believer in Jesus Christ, James is trying to contrast. So, He doesn't mean, when he talks about faith, that faith is just this belief that God is there, this belief that Jesus is real and he's the Son of God. It's only a heart, it's only a heart and someone's actions submitted and surrendered to that right knowledge and that right theology that is true and genuine faith. And so this is then what he talks about. He talks about, here's what genuine faith is. Genuine faith is a trust in God that manifests itself through surrendered heart and action. That's what James is talking about when he refers to the word faith. A trust in God, a belief in God that then manifests itself through surrendered heart and action. And he gives us two examples. He talks about Abraham and he talks about Rahab. And Abraham, many of you know Abraham, he talks about this story. And and I'll just read it. He talks about it in um, in James verse 21, he says, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Here are some examples here. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And so in Genesis chapter 22, it talks about this man Abraham, and God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Now, many of you know the story right when abraham is about to do that and plunge the knife through isaac god tells him to stop it was a testing of his faith and abraham's trust in god then produced out of him obedience equaling uh, uh, then becoming real faith genuine faith and then he gives the example of rahab rahab she was a prostitute in joshua chapter 2 she was not an israelite she was not a hebrew In Joshua chapter 2, the Israelites are making their way into the promised land. Joshua sends two spies into the promised land to kind of scope it out. Rahab, this prostitute, she comes into contact with these two spies, and she believes in the true God. She believes in the God of the Israelites, and her trust in God then produced out of her obedience, which led her to hide the spies so that they wouldn't be killed by her own people. So James gives these two examples. He says, you want to know how faith and works marry one another? Is when your trust and belief in God produces without of you obedience to God. This is what genuine faith is. Genuine faith is when the two are married. Here's the message of the Bible. Here's what James is communicating. And here's how we marry Paul's message and James's message. It's through this phrase. We are not working for our salvation, but we are working from our salvation. We're not working for our salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that we need to work in order to obtain salvation. But rather, works come into play because they are produced out of us when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't work for our salvation, but we work from our salvation. Another way to say it would be this way. Your performance does not direct God's salvation. Your performance reflects God's salvation. There are many people here tonight, most likely, if you've grown up in the church, potentially, or grown up in legalistic settings, maybe a legalistic home, a legalistic church, You were attempting to perform for God so that God would notice you, so that God would love you, so that God might forgive you, and this was a constant journey. You were performing for God in hopes that your performance unto God would direct God's salvation and God's favor and God's love and God's blessing. This isn't what the Bible teaches, and this should be very comforting, that your performance doesn't direct God's favor, but it rather reflects God's favor. That what you do and how you obey and how you behave and how you act should not be in order to obtain God's salvation, but rather, God first loved us, and therefore I want to obey. And my behavior and my action is a direct reflection of God's salvation. This is how we marry the two. This is what James is talking about here. Our obedience to God is a response to God's love that we've already received. Martin Luther, the great theologian in the 15th century, he said, it is not not imitation that makes us sons. It is sonship that makes us imitators. It is not imitation that makes us sons or daughters. It is not just behaving like God and doing good things and doing good works that gains us merit into God's family. But rather, it is sonship that makes us imitators. When you... Are adopted into God's family because of the grace of God and your faith in Jesus Christ, then therefore that produces within you this heart to want to imitate your Father. God has already loved me, God has already shown and showered His grace upon my life. I couldn't earn this, I couldn't work for this. Because of God's grace and his love and the work that he's done in my heart internally. Now externally it produces out of me this desire to want to obey and imitate my Father and look more like Him. You know, we live in such a competitive culture where our performance dictates our success, right? We live in this competitive culture where our performance at the office determines if I'll get a raise. My performance at work will determine if I'll get a promotion. My performance on the sports field will determine if I get the starting job. Performance. We're very performance-oriented. And how we perform at work, at the job, uh, in sports, that will determine my success. And so we take that mentality into our relationships with God and we think, how I perform for you, God, will then determine how you love me in response. Whereas John says, we love because he first loved us. See, we have it backwards. We don't perform for God in order that God will promote us into God's family, but rather because God has promoted us into his family by the work that Jesus Christ did and by our faith in Jesus, then naturally it will produce out of us a desire for good works and a desire to obey. And a lot of us have this mentality with God. Well, I've been to church consistently. I've done my devotions every morning. I gave such and such amount of money to charity. And we correlate with this with, well, I must have a successful relationship with God. Now, all of those are good things. But we begin to think, because I obey, therefore He loves, when in fact, it is because He loves, therefore I obey. It's a beautiful picture. Last phrase. This is what James is saying here. Faith alone saves but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is is never alone. We are saved by faith, not by works, but a genuine saving faith will have works that accompany it. You know, if I told you that I believed in Jesus, but I was getting drunk and I was sleeping around, I was doing all this stuff, you would rightfully question Based upon my actions, you would rightfully question my belief. Let me put it to you this way in an illustration. How faith and works are married, they're intertwined. We're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith, but true faith will have works accompany it. Let's say that there were two pilots on an airplane, and those two pilots that They were running out of fuel on the airplane and that airplane was headed for the side of a mountain and that plane was coming to a crash. And the two pilots, they were looking frantically, how do I get out of this situation? And the two pilots then find two parachutes. This is great. They find two parachutes and they both, when they come upon those two parachutes, they hug each other, they're rejoicing, they're celebrating and they verbally say, I believe that this parachute has the ability to save me. But then, only one actually put on the parachute and jumped out of the plane and pulled the string. The other, then, though he verbally said this parachute has the ability to save me, doesn't put it on, but rather stays in the plane and comes to his own death when the plane crashes into the the mountain. If I were to ask you which of those two pilots actually had genuine faith in that parachute, which one would you say? The one who jumped out of the airplane the one who actually took action. Which brings into question the person who never put on the parachute, did he actually believe in that parachute's ability to save him? Both of these pilots verbally recognized and acknowledged that the parachute is real, that the parachute has the capability to save me, but it's only for the person who jumps with it, who puts their faith into action. True belief Shows itself by actually putting on the parachute and jumping out of the plane. The other died with his belief because his belief never took action. Now, don't get me wrong, the parachute alone saves. You can't jump out of the airplane and just flap your arms and say, I'm going to try my best and do all this, do my hardest to save myself. That won't work. It is only when you put on the parachute. The parachute alone saves, but genuine faith in the parachute means you're going to jump with it. That's why James says in 2.22, do you see that faith was working together with works, and by works, faith was made complete? Paul and James' message isn't inconsistent. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. He also says to Titus in Titus 3.8, he says, this is a faithful saying that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Sounds like Paul is echoing what James says here in James 2. I want to speak tonight to two different people as we close here. I want to talk to two different kinds of people. The first person there are those of you who've grown up in those legalistic settings and you've always felt the pressure to perform. Maybe it was because you had a parent who you felt always put that kind of pressure on you to perform. And your relationship with that parent was dictated by how you performed and how well you did in school and the grades that you got. And so that kind of then casted its shadow on your perception of how God operates in your life. And you've always felt this pressure to perform. I need to perform for you. And you have this intellectual knowledge that God is real, that God exists, that God loves you. But it has gone from here, from the head, straight to the action. And you've missed the heart of the gospel. In your desperation... To please God and to perform for God because you know that God is there and that you you know that God exists. You have skipped the heart of the gospel and you've gone straight to action in an attempt to perform. And it has caused a lot of worry and a lot of exhaustion and a lot of anxiety over your journey and over your life because your relationship with God is all about your performance. I want to encourage you tonight in the Word of God. You need to rest in Jesus' performance on the cross for you and not rest in your performance for the Lord. Jesus stretched his arms out on that cross and he said, it is finished. I have accomplished the way to be reconciled back to God by my work on the cross. And you can rest in that. And you can know that tonight, and you can be free tonight. While, yes, doing good works matters, it should not be in an attempt to direct God's attention to you, but rather as the reflection of your love relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. The writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 4:16, "Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for us in our time of need." The writer says, "Let us therefore approach the throne of grace, not the throne of condemnation, not the throne of performance. Let us approach the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Paul would write in Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. You need to hear this tonight, and you need to know that you can rest in Jesus' performance for you. The writer of Hebrews, he also would talk about in Hebrews chapter 4 to enter into this rest, this rest of your salvation. I want to also talk to those people kind of in this same category. You have a lot of pressure on yourself because you read verses like we read in James two fifteen through 17. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, well, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what, is, what does it profit? Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. A lot of you feel a lot of weight and pressure to meet every single need that you come across. Every time you see a need, every time you see a person in need, you feel this immense weight and pressure to meet everyone's need. And I love your heart. And I love your love for people and your passion for people. Because you take your faith seriously. And you want your faith to be proved by your works. You want to honor the Lord with your works. And you feel pressure to meet every single need that you see. And I also want to bring a word of caution that you don't need to meet every single person's need, but only the needs by which the Holy Spirit directs you to. We see this in the Gospels where there was a lame man at a pool. And around this pool, thousands of people would have gathered, thousands of people paralyzed. And they gathered around this pool. Jesus, though he had the ability to probably physically heal them all, the Holy Spirit directed him to one person. And so sometimes you might see that there are a lot of needy people. It's okay to allow the Holy Spirit to sometimes just direct you to the one. And the Lord says, I want you to invest in the one. I want you to pour your time and your effort and energy into the one. And then the second person I want to talk to, so the the first person has more of a legalistic mindset. Rest in the grace of God. Rest in the work of God. Rest in the performance of Jesus Christ. The second person I want to talk, want to address tonight is, you've been claiming belief in Jesus Christ, but your actions have been very inconsistent. You've been claiming belief in Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. But what you do and what you say, how you talk and how you behave, has been very inconsistent and it hasn't matched your belief. And I want to encourage you tonight to finally marry the two and to repent of it and to come to Christ and to ask Him to give you a full understanding of what salvation is and what it means to be saved by grace not of works, lest no man should boast. However, works do matter. Works are important. And genuine faith is a belief in God that manifests itself through surrendered heart and action. And the action has not matched up with what you claim to believe. And to a lost and dying world that desperately needs to know the hope of Jesus Christ, you will only draw people to the hope of Jesus if you are acting like Jesus. Otherwise, if you're not acting as Jesus would, no one will see that you have anything different or anything worth to offer. It's only when your action and your walk is consistent with what you say that then people will be drawn to something different that you have that they don't. So works are important. Works matter. And so my encouragement to you is to finally marry those two. This doesn't mean a life of perfection, but it should mean a life of progression as your faith begins to take action. Let's pray. Lord, we close there and we ask that you would help us, Lord, and that you would continually grow us, Lord, and mature us that we might properly and practically reflect Jesus to the world around us. I pray for us as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I pray that our behavior would be consistent with our belief. And it's a daily walk. We know that we won't live perfect lives. We know that we... We'll still fall short. We still do on a daily basis, Lord. But I pray that by your grace, you would help us to abound in every good work so that when people see our lives, they see how we talk, they see how we walk, they see how we behave, that it would draw them, Lord, to you that we would be obedient followers of Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't just talk all this stuff, that we wouldn't just say we believe in Jesus, say that we love God, say that we believe God exists, but that that belief would actually manifest itself through good works in our lives, that it would go from the head to the heart, outward to the actions, Lord. And we can only do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We are fallen beings. We are sinful creatures. But I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit living inside of us, that you would help us to obey, Lord. We have that desire. And so we present this to you and we ask that you would accomplish it for our good and for your glory. Lord, where we do fall short, we thank you for your grace. Where our sin runs deep, your grace runs deeper. I pray for those of us who have been walking with you with this performance-oriented mindset where we've always felt the pressure that we need to perform for you in order for you to save us and like us and love us. I pray, Lord, that you would completely give us a fresh perspective tonight. That we would finally rest in the work that you've done for us on the cross. That we would finally just understand the grace that you have given us, that we cannot work for our salvation, we cannot earn salvation, that salvation is a free gift to those who turn and trust in Christ. Help us just to simply receive that gift and to receive your grace. And out of that overflowing love that you have for us, may we respond with obedience. May we not have it the other way around, Lord. May we not obey in order to gain your love, but may we obey because you've loved us, Lord. Help us, Jesus. Help us to rest in that and to truly just celebrate your goodness and your grace in our lives. Thank you for our Bible study tonight. Thank you for our time. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Go before them now as they continue in this week, whether they have school, whether they're at work whether they're at home with family, whether they're on their own, be with them. Help us to be in your word so that we might grow and mature and look more like your son, Jesus. We love you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people together said, Amen. Amen.